0: Welcome to How to Break Money, Episode 4, The Ballad of Don LaPree.
1: There is so much money out there, most people in America have no idea how easy it is to make money in the United States. Well, after this show, you'll no longer be able to say, no one ever told you.
0: And the way I heard it, Russ learned his note-flipping method from... Some guy who did the shtick in hotel banquet halls. All your money was made by getting butts in seats, teaching people in person. Then, Russ experimented with using 900 numbers to make money. Chopping up his business secrets into paper-minute chunks. But that was not enough to make Russ rich. And I don't know the exact timeline, but this appears to be when Russ meets Don LaPree.
1: don how much money can just one 900 line make in one week i really wish i could answer that but the sky is a limit what do you want to make 30 40 50 60 thousand dollars a week yeah, that'll work. one yeah. line alone can receive thousands and thousands of calls per day did you know it's possible for 800 people at the same exact time to call your line and get through let's say You only have one line, and you're only getting 500 calls per day, and you have it set up to where you're going to receive $10 per call. That's $5,000 a day, $35,000 a week. But again, your potential is unlimited.
0: Without Don LaPree, I don't see how Russ gets to $330 million. By the turn of the century, Don was an infomercial superstar, big enough to get lampooned on Saturday Night Live.
1: This is my point. Anyone can start a 900 number. Anyone? But I didn't graduate high school. Neither did I. Neither did most people. This is my point. There is nothing...
0: And like I said, I don't know the exact details of how Don and Russ started their collaboration, but Don shared with Russ his printers, web designers, TV show producers, all of that. And that's what allowed Russ to start a run of success that... In the five years I worked for him, took sales from $60,000 a month to $10 million a month. And in the beginning, Russ shared his
1: leads with Don too. Don LaPree worked his way from bankruptcy to financial independence in less than a year. How did he do it? It was easy, and he's ready to pass his money-making secrets on to you. They're all here in this money-making package, available only through this program.
0: Don was a high school dropout, a nondescript white dude. He looked like a guy that would install your car stereo, but steal the quarters from the ashtray while doing it. He grew up in Phoenix and had several schemes and at least one bankruptcy before he added his
1: wrinkle to the infomercial formula. So Don, what should I do? Buy and sell, place ads, or get a 900 line? All three are money makers. You can do one or you can do all three. Start with the one that gets you the most excited. Just one can make you all the money you want.
0: Don would tell you his simple hook and he'd wrap it in 30 minutes of video, repeating the simple idea over and over and over. But to really succeed, you also needed a good, short biography.
1: Don LaPree, at age 23, not even having graduated from high school, was barely eking out a living as a house painter. But things got worse. He was forced to declare bankruptcy. He lost everything. His credit was ruined. Struggling to make ends meet, Don came up with a money-making idea that today puts more than $50,000 a month in his pocket. Don is now able to provide his family with a lifestyle that most of us only dream of. Join us as Don LaPree shares his secrets of success with us on making money.
0: And the customers who spent the most came with their own story, their own narrative path that led them to Don.
1: My bank stole $1.7 from me, and I want to get back that money
0: uh-huh, uh-huh.
1: that's been taken from me.
0: Yeah, I imagine.
1: I literally did it fraudulently. I got to
0: pay for attorneys and, and, and sue the bank and try to put them out of business. I met Don LaPree once. Well, I was in the room with uh, 20 or so other success counselors when he came by the office to give us an inspirational speech that I can't really remember. But... I do remember to make his point, he'd say, boom, like uh, if you offer a custom website to every person you talk to, then boom, you'll be making more money. Don was there to hype us up about guaranteed traffic, which was his latest scam. And Russ was going to share his leads with Don's sales team and they were going to sell it and Russ would get a cut. This was just after the first .dot .com bubble burst and everyone had finally gotten used to websites. Guaranteed traffic was the promise of your own custom website, and best of all, they would guarantee to bring traffic to the site. For your note business, that's how they pitched it to restless customers, but really for whatever business you have. Of course, it was a shit website, getting fake hits, and it was nearly invisible to search engines, but all of that was left unsaid. Unlike Russ, Don was exactly like he was on TV.
1: Thank you for calling GuaranteedTraffic.com. If you have not yet ordered one of our amazing programs and you are looking to drive thousands of people to your website, please go ahead and press 9 at this time.
0: And it was after Don's visit that Russ got serious about monitoring phone calls. Don was profiled in the Phoenix New Times by Lee Farr in a January 2000 article that said this. A quality assurance staff member would record their conversations and review them each day. A telemarketer who was caught saying something mildly misleading would receive a white slip. A yellow slip meant they'd veered off the script and a pink slip meant they didn't get paid for that sale. So that shows you that Don always understood you weren't supposed to break the fourth wall. You had to follow the script. You had to believe the customer's story because Don knew the call center was just a filter trapping true believers. So someone needs to be listening and maintaining the filter. And it was right after Don's visit that Russ hired me to run Quality Assurance to monitor and record calls every day. Russ didn't share leads with Don for long though. Soon after starting to listen to calls, I could hear things deteriorating at Don's company. Uh, so my dad and I says, well, what's this going to cost?" They asked me if I have credit cards or how much I owe, et cetera, et cetera. Personally, it's not in a damn business, but the, the thing is, uh, he told me, well, they want me to put down, I said, well, what, what, what do you mean I have to invest? I said, how much? He said, well, from five to $6,000. And says you want me to put your, right, you know, put your information to give my credit card to you so you can put six, seven thousand dollars on it. And I had no idea who you, how you are. I mean, it was nah, no way. Don was burning our leads, but Don was a crash and burn kind of guy. And soon after Russ stopped sharing his leads, Don went off and started the venture that eventually led the government to shut him down. He started selling a product called The Greatest Vitamin in the World.
1: In just minutes, you could be completely set up with your very own vitamin website that's designed to do all of the work for you. Listen to this. You just send people to your website. The website will actually educate people on the incredible benefits of the greatest vitamin in the world.
0: Well... He was expecting you to resell his magic vitamins. That's essentially it. It's, it's one thing to make up some idea like tiny classified ads. Then when somebody fails, you can say, well, you just didn't try hard enough. But vitamins can be tested. And it turns out they were not the greatest vitamins in the world. Still, it took the federal government years to shut Don down. On June 8, 2011, Don Laprie was indicted in federal court on charges of conspiracy, mail fraud, wire fraud, promotional money laundering, and criminal forfeiture. Don failed to appear in court, and a warrant was issued for his arrest. The warrant was issued on June 22, 2011, and by June 23, U.S. Marshals had him in custody. According to Stephen Lemons, reporting in the Phoenix New Times, when federal agents pulled Don over near Warner Road and I-10 in Tempe, he was bleeding from self-inflicted wounds to his groin. In the short time he was on the run, most of it seems to have been spent at a 24-hour fitness club in Tempe. He had been hiding out in a family-changing room and amid the din and hum of this shared space, he slipped out at some point to buy a knife. The article quotes an employee who said they found a knife that day and a bunch of ruined clothes and towels. We didn't know what it was. We didn't think it was blood. We actually thought it was shit. Four months later, in October, while still in custody and awaiting trial, Don took his own life. He left behind a final message on com. I don't know if it was assembled in the 24 hour fitness center on a laptop or in jail awaiting trial, but his business site was wiped and in its place was a one page missive where he defended his actions. And he also included a collage of images. The website. Archive.org crawls as many websites as it can find and saves each result. And the search engine for those results is called the Wayback Machine. So if you go there and you search a URL, in this instance, donlapree.com, it gives you a look at how that website appeared on the day it was crawled. So you can track changes to websites. And on March 17th, 2011, before Marshalls captured him, you can see the first radical change. In a large font, he declared, This website is being updated, so please check back soon. And then underneath, he lists a fake email. Support at imgoingbananas.com I'm going bananas was a pretty honest take on his part. The feds were closing in, and he knew it. The only other website crawl before Don's death occurred on August 24th, and that's when the website changed dramatically and finally. So although the website crawl was on August 24th, I think this change was made between June 22nd and June 23rd. And the title of this webpage is, Never Stop Dreaming. And then Don writes, I tried to create the best product on earth, paid out millions, made very little, trying to make it a success, had attorneys review my entire company, paid out millions in refunds, tried to make the commission and products better every single year. And in spite of all that, I have been accused of something I did not do. I did not have the perfect company, but never once did I allow one thing to be done that would violate any law. Nevertheless, because the majority of people did not make money in spite of every one of them being able to make as many thousand dollar checks as they wanted, I'm left to fight a battle that will for sure destroy what energy I have left inside. I hope the pictures below motivate you to take a chance in life and try to do the impossible. It did not work out for me with my vitamins. But I believe that being willing to fail is part of having a chance at success. Never stop dreaming. And for all those who sent me testimonials of what you did because of some of my help, I'm grateful I made a small difference in your life. and there's a series of personal photos that he uploaded. The first images are of a luxurious modern house with glass walls, all rooms airy and modern. Everything open to a lush landscape of mature trees, green grass, and paved paths. The furniture is mid-century modern and sleek, but they look like pictures from a real estate agent's listing. They're not pictures of his house, but pictures of the location of his dream house. At the top of this missive, he says to never stop dreaming, and he means it, literally. The next dozen or so also appear downloaded from real estate listings and depict mansion living on the beach, a master bedroom that opens to the surf, Beachside patio and dining, pools and showers, all open air and clean, the blue sky and the blue water enveloping the scene of luxury, scenes of luxury that were never really his. One of the anecdotes that sticks out from Lee Farr's article in the Phoenix Times is he was already raking in money in 1997 when he buys his mom a house in the mountains of Arizona, Prescott, Arizona. And he spends $269,000 on the house, and then signs a contract for $130,000, half the value of the home, for a Disney-esque water feature in the desert mountains of Arizona. But he was sued for breach of contract. I mean, he spent a fortune on a really nice pool that he didn't finish paying for. But when his dreams hit reality, he always seems to abandon the old dream and outrun the consequences. Until June 2011, when he retreated to a 24-hour fitness club, jumped on the public Wi-Fi, uploaded images, building this site and site builder to craft his final message. After the dream home images, there are a series of private photos with his two children and his wife. There are no pictures where they're all together but Don is in one photo holding his young son in the air, and the boy is dressed as Superman. In an earlier picture, the little boy is dressed as a jack-o'-lantern. In another picture, the boy's face is half covered with a marker in an attempt to draw on a Spider-Man mask, and he's grinning wide. The other child looks older. This girl is pictured posing with arms on hips, standing on the kitchen counter, Another shows his wife smiling big in a blurry flash picture that looks copied several generations from an original. Then the last picture is a photograph of a handwritten letter his daughter gave him. It's a poem, probably for school, and is titled My Dad. It starts, yellow cap, shorts and a t-shirt, always thinks of everyone else first. It goes on. The letter becoming something tragic and shouldn't be debased any further than I've already done here. Don's dreams ended in a federal holding cell, and I think that hard-locked focus he put on following his dreams, no matter what, is a common trait among both the closers and the victims of these frauds. It's the belief that kills you. I'm not saying you can't get away with it. I'm saying you can't outrun it. Being in the hospital for eight days on my back made it hard to walk from the wheelchair to the minivan. My legs shook and I had to focus deep on each step to make my feet move. To pretend to my mom that I'm fine, I'm just slow. Mom felt guilty about letting the surgery happen. I could see it on her face. She got all teary-eyed over everything, even after asking if I wanted a cheesesteak from Jerry, which, yeah, I did. I was hurt, not dead. By the next morning, my stack of heavy metal tapes were safely in their wooden crates, displayed in alphabetical order and all pointing the right way, everything exactly how I left it. Eddie the zombie mascot from Iron Maiden staring at me from a poster on my closet door, his frozen scream, a welcome sight. No one was home. Everyone else had stuff to do, all the things left undone because of visiting me in the hospital. There were ten bottle rockets in my top dresser drawer, fuses sticking out and ready. Alec got back a couple days ahead of me from North Carolina, where fireworks are legal and he smuggled out a bag full. His prized stash was a few dozen bottle rockets, and he gave me ten of them, and I didn't even have to ask. My bedroom was on the second floor, back from the street. The house sat on a half acre, and our next-door neighbor's house was on the corner. One simple question bubbled up in my brain. Can I hit my neighbor's house with a bottle rocket from my window? Well, let's find out. It hurt to walk, every step teasing the stapled wound still fresh, so it took a long time to baby step down the stairs to the kitchen knowing there'd be an empty bottle of Diet Pepsi in the trash. My dad drank at least one every night after work. This was back when every soda bottle was still made of glass. With the bottle in hand, I crept back up the stairs to my dad's office, which contained the last thing I needed, a pack of matches from his cigar box. Back in the room, I locked the door, even though no one's home. My house was the oldest in the neighborhood, built in 1821, so my old bedroom window was hard to open in the humid August afternoon. I pulled the window up halfway, the pain triggering a kind of vertigo, sat down and breathed as shallowly as possible until it passed. There was an aluminum frame for storm windows, but since it was summer, the storm windows were in storage and that left a ridge that was above the windowsill and I was able to set the bottle on it, pointing it up and out. I threaded in a bottle rocket so it faced the sky at an angle perfectly suited to hit my neighbor's house striking a match to light the fuse as satisfying sparks startled awake the bottle rocket as the fuse ignited and quick and launched, hissing, spitting sparks and shooting directly at my neighbor's house, hitting it with a satisfying bang from the bottle rocket and smoke drifted out of the glass bottle like a muzzle from a fired pistol. Stood up slowly, pulled the top dresser drawer open selecting another bottle rocket slotted it into the empty bottle the wooden match crackled alive as it lit the fuse with a spark so quick but i'm not so steady and i knocked the bottle sideways off the aluminum frames and still holding the lit match i knocked the bottle further back and in panic and it's pointing towards the room and i can't move fast enough through the pain and Yet my panicked brain sees the whole thing in slow motion, the explosion as the bottle rocket catches and fires with a hiss into my bedroom and I drop the lit match. Sparking and slithering like an angry snake, the velocity pins the bottle rocket to the floor along the closet, finding the corner of the room still hissing and smoking until exploding loud and filling the room with smoke and I could have burned the house down or blown off my thumb. But as the smoke cleared, there, there, there was nothing. Nothing happened. It was more than four years between the time of my subpoena with that Colorado AG lawyer until the day in 2011, when Russ was served with a permanent injunction by the FTC and the state of Colorado. Russ hired lawyers to bargain for him before he finally consented to the order without a trial in 2013. He neither admitted nor denied any of the allegations that he violated the Telemarketing and Consumer Fraud and Abuse Prevention Act but he agreed to pay back the $330 million that the government says he scammed. I don't know how much the federal government ever clawed back, and for the purposes of this story, it doesn't matter. Russ needed your help. He needed you to call and believe and use a credit card to give cash to another person on the other end of the phone. He wasn't tricking you in that he was promising real objects but sending you counterfeits. He was taking advantage of the magic of cash where one person agrees to give another person dollars. That's why Russ had scripts for the salesman on the phone. They they were never supposed to promise, you will make money. They were supposed to promise, you could. Cash is something we do together. Cash needs somebody else. And the other person can have corrupt intentions, but you still need both to circuit. We need it. And yet, and if you thought I would really answer how to break money, know that that's the kind of hope shared by the people who bought Russ's product, really believing that they were going to get the secret, in their case, the secret to getting rich quick. I have no secret. How to break money was never going to be that. How to break money is breaking the spell. Cash is the spell that's cast every time someone spends it with someone else. And we all believe we need it and we're all under its spell. But the things we believe we need are not always what we actually need. Let the buyer beware. I have no answers except my own. And so this is a simple warning. And I'm not talking about needing things like food and needing things like shelter. But that thing you believe you need is gonna fix everything. The more certain you are that cash is the answer, the greater the chance that you're wrong. After my subpoena was over, I left my lawyer's office and took the elevator down to the street, loosened my tie, walked down the sidewalk to my car, drunk on the height of the skyscrapers, and that was it. <laughs> that was it. I didn't hear from them again. I didn't burn the house down. I didn't blow my thumb off. But the scars remain, they're mine. I own them, they, they compass my path forward. And cash isn't real like gold or real estate. Cash is a real story we tell ourselves and we make it out of paper, but we can make it out of whatever we want. You've been listening to How to Break Money, and I'm Eric Allen. For all episodes and more information, visit howtobreakmoney.com. To contact me directly, write a message and send it to howtobreakmoney@gmail.com. at gmail.com. And if you listen this far, please rate the episode on whatever app you use or share it with a friend. Portions of this episode were told before on KCRW's show, Unfictional, in the episode 1-800-KISS-MY-ASS that I produced with Bob Carlson and Nick White.